0: The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love, with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, host of Just Love. We're here for our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. Tom Dobbins is with us, who does a great job in kind of rounding up interesting guests who can kind of inform our conversation each week and enlighten us about some of those topics that are going on in the world that we want to view through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. And so uh, thank you for joining us in the middle of summer, and I hope that your summer is going well. Tom, how about your summer? How's it going? My summer's great, Monsieur. Uh, You know, I mean, uh, it hasn't been, I, I, I mean, I was away when New York was really hot, and I came back when New York got cooler. So I haven't experienced a hot, hot New York summer yet. So okay. from my perspective, summer is great. I, <laughs> I'm really enjoying the weather. How about, how about yourself? <laughs> um, yes. I mean, I um, the week it was hot, it was hot. Um, But, you know, to be honest, I do not mind the heat. And I think for most of us in almost all of the United States, um, there's a lot of air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much time that people generally spend, you know, outdoors. Obviously, some people spend a lot more time, you know, outdoors because of their work or even vacation. But also a lot of people spend time indoors in buildings that are air conditioned, mm-hmm. and so you know it's a little bit of a um, of a mixed bag. Now, let's let's realize that some of the people who live in apartment and apartment houses and even houses that maybe um, are on the you know lower end of the rental market, lower end of the home ownership, some of those may not have air conditioning. Exactly. And that can be very sweltering for people. And um, if you look at some of the old movies, you can kind of, you know, see some of the old tenements and things like that, <clears throat> in which um, this hot temperature could be oppressive. So, you know, I think we have to realize we live in kind of a mixed bag. But, Tom, um, here's something that I will kind of share with you that uh, <clears throat> was kind of a little surprising to me. Um uh-huh. My cousin called me uh, a, a few days ago, and for whatever reason she and her husband had been uh, intrigued by uh, possibly going on vacation in Chile in Argentina in South America and so they you know we were talking about it a little bit and you know talked about did I want to go, etc and so as a result of that, I did a little looking at things, but discovered that right now, or maybe a few days ago, Argentina, Chile, South America is undergoing a tremendous heat wave. Oh, wow. Like over a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. But so Tom, why is that even more amazing than ordinary that we would say when we talked about the heat wave in New York this. Now you got to go back to your sixth grade <laughs> geography to answer the question correctly. <laughs> I think I may know the answer, Monsieur, Here, because when you were talking about that, I thought you were going to tell me that Argentina and Chile were freezing because it's currently winter south yep. of the border. Yeah. So, wow, that's fascinating. It's so hot there. That's bizarre. In their winter, in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, exactly. Winter. Exactly. So, yeah. So it's a very, very kind of interesting situation. You know, I've always felt that in terms of the conversation about stewardship of the environment, about climate change, and what is usually called, you know, global warming, um, and I certainly am very one who is willing to accept the mainstream um, science on that. But from a kind of a marketing point of view, I think we should have called it kind of uh climate volatility you know yes. <laughs> because you know it's not always warmer and sometimes the warmth translates into thunderstorms and tornadoes and I think warming and actually quite frankly I mean warming is kind of a nice thing right don't yeah. you want a warm hot don't you want to be warm so it kind of I think the global warming maybe you know, kind of makes it a little bit less dramatic and maybe kind of comforts some, some of us that we don't need to pay as much attention <laughs> to it. So anyway, that's a little bit of my little take on, you know, kind of what's going on in in the world of, of um, you know, climate, et cetera, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but, you know, so I have to ask you, Tom, um this summer has been a summer in which there has been um a lot of interest and concern not interest i mean not concern in kind of two movies and mm-hmm. one of those movies where there has been you know a lot of publicity around is the movie uh oppenheimer mm-hmm. and that movie um was basically the movie that talks about the development of The atomic bomb in World War II, And so um, right now, this is the time of the year in which um, we recall that because it's the anniversary of, you know, the dropping of the atomic bomb in uh, August in 1945, in the two cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. So today's show. We're going to be focusing on that issue. And Tom, I want to thank you for rounding up our two guests uh, this week, uh, who's going to talk about it from different perspectives. And uh, the first conversation we're going to have is about some of the consequences that actually were not highlighted in the movie Oppenheimer about the impact of the testing of the bomb in in New Mexico. So we're going to talk about that, and then a little bit later on in the show, we'll talk with the president of the Senegidio Foundation for Peace and Dialogue uh, about the their plan to kind of hold a vigil for peace, in order to raise up the need for ongoing uh, discussion, awareness, and prayer for uh, for peace. So. Tom, why don't we go to our first guest? Our first guest is Tina Cordova. She's the co-founder of the tolarosa Basin Downwinders Consortium. And I'm delighted to welcome Tina to Just Love. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today on Just Love.
1: Thank you, Monsignor Sullivan. It's a pleasure
0: to be with you. Great. So, you know, even though we're doing this, conversation through Zoom and we can see each other. Our listeners cannot. So give our listeners a little bit of the person attached to the voice. So give our listeners a little bit of sense of your personal history, how you kind of became involved in this issue, your co-founding of this consortium. So let our listeners get to know you a little bit before we go into this very important topic.
1: Okay, I'd be glad to do that. So I was born and raised in a small town in southern New Mexico called Tularosa. I lived there until I turned 18, and then I left to go to college. I have uh, a master's degree in biology with a minor in chemistry, and I'm a roofer. I earn my daily wage. I've owned a business for 33 years in the roofing industry in New Mexico. But the way that I became involved in this issue is that long ago I realized that the people of New Mexico had been overexposed to radiation as a result of living so close to the Trinity test site. And I'm a cancer survivor. I identify as a downwinder. I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer when I was 39 years old. And the first question they asked me was, when were you exposed to radiation? Did you work with radioactive isotopes? Have you worked in an x-ray facility? Have you had a lot of x-rays? And I said, no, no, and no, but I, but I grew up in a village 45 miles the way the crows fly from the Trinity test site. And even before I was diagnosed with cancer, I had two great-grandfathers that had died from cancer. Both my grandmothers had had cancer. Eventually, my dad died from cancer. Uh, so my family has five generations now of cancer uh, patients since 1945 I have a 23 year old niece that was recently diagnosed with thyroid cancer. My family's not unique we've documented many 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 families like this throughout the state of New Mexico and so years ago I co-founded this organization with the late Fred Tyler also from Tularosa. and basically he asked in a letter to the editor of the local newspaper when are we going to hold our government government accountable for the damage they did to us He returned after having a career away, and his mom had just died after having three different cancers. And so I joined with Fred to start the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, or TBDC for short, and that was 18 years ago. I've dedicated a very large part of my life to doing this advocacy work.
0: Hey, Tina, thank you so much. That provides a a really um, uh, nice, uh, very succinct kind of summary of that. Um, so when I ask about this, I mean, um, a little bit later, I'm going to ask a little bit about statistics. Um, how? I mean, tell us a little bit about, from your understanding, I know you weren't there, but so they picked what, quote unquote, was supposed to be, a relatively deserted area and to test the bomb. But they didn't do that, did they?
1: No. Uh, interestingly enough, a few years ago, a student at the University of New Mexico completed a study on our behalf where he took the 1940 census data and he overlaid every census tract on a map of New Mexico. And then he made Trinity the center, the center of that map and drew radiuses around Trinity in 10 mile increments. And what we know, as a matter of fact, based on 1940 census data, so it would have been even larger in 1945, is that there were about 14,000 children, women and men living in a 50 mile radius to the test site. And if you extend that radius to 150 miles, it encompassed Albuquerque and Santa Fe to the north, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez to the south. And it was a half a million people. So the idea that no one lived here and no one was harmed or that it was remote and uninhabited is absolutely not true. They just didn't see us and we didn't count for anything inside of their mission to develop this device and then subsequently test it.
0: So, Dina, let me kind of ask you, um, let me phrase the question in this way. Um, And maybe you've already answered it, but let me phrase it in this way. I think it's reasonable to say that those who were testing the bomb and choosing it didn't want to cause damage to the people in the area. I'm not saying that uh, excuses the damage that was done, but did they just not know not care not pay attention did they think that there wasn't going to be an impact i mean i know i've asked you three different questions but i mean i'm assuming they didn't want to contaminate anybody in the area but they well, actually did so what was going on
1: well let me tell you this okay. in answer to your question people regularly say well they didn't know what they were doing but that is absolutely not truth, and uh, not true. And let me explain. Okay. It was already a very well established fact that exposure to radiation was dangerous to human health. That was an established fact. Right. They had meteorologists and physicians assigned to the test to monitor human health. They were warning about how that the bomb was going to create massive fallout that was likely going to. Uh, cover the landscape and impose on the people who lived so close because there were people living as close as 12 miles to the test site. They did a test run and a lot of people don't know about this, but in May of 1945 out there at the test site, they detonated a conventional bomb laced with plutonium so they could track fallout. And what they learned from that test is that fallout was going to go all across the Tularosa Basin. Now, it's our rainy season in July, and we have massive windstorms associated with the thunderstorms that move in. So they absolutely knew. And the meteorologists were warning that this was the worst possible time to detonate a bomb like this because of the rainstorms that we have. And in the movie, they depicted it very well. I mean, there was a massive rainstorm the night before it delayed the test. The test was actually supposed to be conducted in the middle of the night, and they delayed it till 530 in the morning when they expected to see a break in the weather. And, <clears throat> and so they did it. They detonated it. And then we had a massive rainstorm later that day, which likely brought down the biggest particles of plutonium. And let me say this much, the meteorologists and physicians eventually convinced General Groves that they should prepare to at least evacuate the people of Carrizozo, which was one of the towns closest to the test site, about 35 miles away, the Crows Fly. We had active rail systems through those towns. We had had railroads running right through these towns. Instead of lining up rail cars that they could have taken people out in, they lined up cattle trucks. We don't move cattle in July because it's inhumane. The temperatures reach over a hundred degrees. A cattle truck would have been filthy, no place for people to sit down. And when I reflect on that, I think about my good friend, Bernice Gutierrez, who was born eight days before the bomb in Carrazozo. And I guess her mother would have uh, wrapped her up in a blanket and they would have been herded into a cattle truck to be driven away on dirt roads to where we don't know. But When they reached the level of radiation in Carrizozo at which they had decided to evacuate, they were told to double it. And when they reached that level, they were told to double it again. And when they reached that level, instead of evacuating anybody in the cattle trucks, instead they told the men who were monitoring to leave because they were not safe. And so we were never given any advance warning or warning afterwards. And we were likely overexposed to very high levels of radiation.
0: We're speaking with Tina Cordova, who's the co-founder of the Telorosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, which is a group that continues to raise awareness about the impact of the Trinity test in July of 1945 on the people living in the community surrounding that Test site. Um, so, Tina, n- now go into a little bit. For I think many of our our listeners, and I would say myself, is you know I understand that radiation causes damage, and I mean obviously the reason the bomb is dropped is to create destruction and to kill people. I mean that's the purpose of it. It's not a salutary. Initial impact. So how does it do it? I mean, since, since the intent of that test was not to kill people, but to test the bomb, but how does the radiation kind of kill people or hurt their health? How does that happen?
1: Well, there's three modes of exposure to radiation. There's through inhalation, there's through absorption through your skin, and then there's through ingestion. Uh, when you receive, obviously, a high-level uh, exposure to radiation through any one of those modes, the radiation causes your DNA to break down. In some cases, our bodies are able to repair that breakage in the DNA but it cannot address all of it. And if you've been overexposed to very high levels, it it doesn't repair all of it. And obviously uh, your body starts to respond to that. In the case of the people at Trinity, I always say we didn't die that day, but it was the beginning of the end for us because we were inhaling the particulate matter as it fell from the sky as a radioactive ash. And that's a well-recorded part of the oral histories that we've recorded an ash fell from the sky for days afterwards the plume that was created the fireball that was created by trinity ascended somewhere between 40 and 80,000 feet are the estimates that's over seven miles high so obviously whatever goes up that high has to come down and that's the ash that fell then we didn't have running water in most of the villages of new mexico back then so we depended on the rain that fell from the sky Now, our rain was also contaminated. The rain that fell from the sky was also contaminated. Our water source was now contaminated. We collected water in cisterns, holding vessels, containment vessels, or we used the water that flowed in the ditches into our tiny towns, uh, rivers, lakes, streams, etc., then you have the fallout on the ground we didn't have electricity no grocery stores only a mercantile where you could buy things like sugar rice coffee flour cereal but no no meat no dairy no produce we produced all of our food by our own means at our own homes this was now also incredibly contaminated so everything that we were doing was exposing ourselves to radiation there was no escaping it And people often ask me, well, why didn't you all move away? The only safe day to move away was July 15th, 1945, and we didn't know that we should move away. And so as a matter of fact, Monsignor, our town, our little town of Tularosa, uh, the center of that town is the Catholic church that's over 150 years old. And people are very rooted in the idea that this is what we're tied to. People couldn't leave. We didn't have the resources. We didn't have the knowledge. And we didn't have the desire. And we've basically been dying
0: ever since. Mm. And again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I but I suspect the people in the town, ta- did the people in the town know that the test was going to happen? No warning,
1: neither yeah. before or afterwards. Mm. And no no understanding of what radiation exposure meant there's a story in the history about uh, members of the test uh group showing up at a ranch in new mexico and talking to the rancher and they're they're dressed in head-to-toe safety what was you know back then considered safety gear and he has mat stuff from 1945 and he they the the Rancher asks them, what are you doing? And they said, we're checking for radiation. And he said, you're not going to find any here. We don't own a radio. And yeah. so that, that and, yeah. and, you know, that's part of this history. I always say they depended on us to be unsophisticated, uneducated, and unable to stand up for ourselves. And that's how this test was conducted in the middle of the New Mexico desert without fanfare or attention or the leaking of the top secret nature.
0: So uh, how far, and you may have said this, and maybe I missed it, but Tularosa, that town, it's a town? Yes. How far of that, how far away was that from the actual detonation?
1: 45 miles away, the crows fly, and Tularosa is one of the entry points to what is now White Sands Missile Range and the Trinity Site.
0: Okay. Um, So did, so... Everything gets infected with radiation. Let's just take the water. Did did people know after the bomb? Well, the first question is, if you were in Tua did you hear the bomb?
1: You experienced it. It knocked you out of bed and likely the dishes fell out of your cupboard uh-huh. and the flash of light was brighter than the sun at 5.30 in the morning. It, the, the test actually created more light, and 10,000 times more heat than the sun. So it was massive. And what people tell me about that day is that they were knocked out of bed, most of them, awakened by this massive event. And then what they told me was they thought they were experiencing the end of the world because it seemed as though the sun was rising in the west. And they said they dropped to their knees, started praying the rosary in Spanish, gathered up their children. One woman told me the history about how she was born the the day before the bomb was detonated. And she told me that her mother was still recovering from having given birth. And she said that her mother was alone. Her father was away working in the railroad and or on the railroad. And she said that her mother gathered them all together started praying the rosary and had always told the story about how she thought they were all going to die together that morning it was massive and it was that people have told me they don't have the words to describe what they experienced that day and no word afterwards about what it was everybody was sort of left to contemplate what was that and people gathered later in the day in in the you know in the plazas the town squares and, and gossiped, but they had no idea what they had experienced. And afterwards, they had no idea what it meant that this ash continued to fall from the sky.
0: So we're speaking with Tina Cordova, the co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, um, which raises awareness of the impact of the Trinity test in New Mexico on the people living in the, in the area. You just answered one of my questions. But how long did the ash kind of continue to to fall? People have told me that it fell for
1: days. So I would imagine, you know, you're talking about an event that lasted several days afterwards. And it's one of the things that my grandmother recalled most. I mean, she said she remembers being frightened that morning and experiencing a flash that was brighter than any daylight she'd ever experienced. But she said the worst of it was it's July. You know, we don't have a way to cool our homes. The temperatures exceed 100 degrees. And we would have every window and every door open to our homes. And this ash just kept coming in. We kept sweeping it out we hung wet bed sheets and towels and pillowcases in the windows to create a draft, a cool draft. And those kept, they were, you know, they would, they would get dirty. They would be dirty afterwards because of the ash settling on them. And she said, what I remember most is it was just a terrible, we had a terrible time keeping
0: up with the ash. And, um, you know, let's go down the, like a couple of weeks afterwards, the ash would have, Stopped falling. Mm-hmm. Did anybody tell the people in the community what had happened?
1: No, no, there was never, ever, ever anyone come back from the government to discuss this with us. Now, in the most recent past, there have been some things. I was a study released this week by a professor at Northern Era, an emeritus professor from Northern Arizona University, biochemist who came to New Mexico recently took soil samples along roadways uh, north of the test site and has found plutonium that has a a unique footprint tying it back to Trinity in all these locations. And plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years. It's the most toxic, toxic substance known to man. And we have always said that there has to be plutonium spread all over New Mexico because they packed that bomb with 13 pounds of plutonium when only three pounds were necessary for the fission process. So a full 10 pounds went up in that fireball. And we knew, we knew, we've always known that it was likely deposited all over New Mexico. And so they have now proven that in a study released this week.
0: So let's say a month or so after, um, you talked about the water and in cisterns and wells and things like that that water would have been contaminated with the with the rain if if i were there and i were drinking that water could i taste the difference or would i just think i was drinking regular water
1: you would never taste it 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 right. wouldn't change the taste of the water you would think you were just drinking normal water and yeah. water was a a sought after commodity yeah. since there was not a spigot where you turned on uh the flow of water and so Uh, You know, the cistern water, the rainwater, I've always have been told by people was, was highly valued. And the water that came in the streams and the creeks and the ditches was used alternatively for bathing and cleaning, you know, doing laundry, those sorts of things. But that water was contaminated as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you wouldn't have known, you would have had no way of knowing what this meant.
0: So I I said I was going to ask you a little bit about some statistics later on. And so obviously what you kind of just spoke with our listeners about is the prevalence of cancer as a result of that. Is there any, not every statistic, but is there a statistic that the rate there compared with the rate in other places to give our listeners a sense of, how it has impacted the health of people there?
1: The, the government has never come back to do an, what's called an epidemiological study where right. they account for everybody that was alive at the time. I certainly don't think they ever really wanted to know what the findings would be. So anecdotally, we've collected health surveys for the better part of the last 16 years. Right. And we have you know close to a thousand of these health surveys. And I can tell you that uh, the family histories are not to be believed, but there's no study out there that is a conclusive study of the health effects on the people of New Mexico.
0: Okay. Um, so let, let's go come up again to the present now. Obviously, there are long-term impacts and things. What should we be doing as a country in light of this? I mean, what can we, what can we do now, 75 years later, about this.
1: I always say I don't have to explain the difference between right and wrong to people. I think when you hear this history, you realize that American citizens were victims of the first atomic bomb right here in New Mexico. And, and that is truly wrong. It was an invasion of our lands and our lives without any consent or knowledge. And um, that is just wrong. And it has left us to deal with generations of cancer sacrifice and suffering. There's a fund that's been set up since 1990, so for 33 years, that's been taking care of downwinders from other places and uranium miners and workers who mined uranium before 1971. We have a whole history of uranium mining in New Mexico that I can speak to if you're interested. But this fund has never taken care of us. We've never been included. We've never been acknowledged. And right now, we're in a fight. In the u.s congress for that acknowledgement and that inclusion in the fund it's called the radiation exposure compensation act or RECA for short uh, amazingly enough last week the amendments to RECA to include the people of new mexico and other parts of the american west who've been left out passed the u.s senate after 13 years of bills being introduced oh. it was added to the national defense authorization act as an amendment uh The Congress, the Senate, was able to work in a bipartisan fashion to address a nonpartisan issue. And isn't that refreshing? But, but, the House of Representatives now has to reconcile their version of the NDAA with the Senate version of the NDAA. And we are praying that they absolutely, absolutely see it the same way as the Senate and that they become part of a winning process or they'll go down in history as those who blocked justice for the people of New
0: Mexico and the American West Tina Cordova thank you so much for being with us certainly making me smarter our listeners better informed and but more importantly thank you for your raising up this issue which my own opinion I really thought, the movie Oppenheimer was an excellent movie, but it didn't talk about this. And I'm maybe a little bit more understanding. A movie can't do everything, but we can't ignore the issue that you raised today. And I'm glad we were able to raise it up for our listeners on Just Love. So thank you for the work you're doing to raise up awareness about this very, very tragic and important issue.
1: Thank you, Monsignor Sullivan. It was a pleasure to be with you.
0: Okay. Tina Cordova, the co-founder of the Telerosa Basin Downwinders Consortium. This is just love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We're on the Catholic channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world. As we discuss very broad issues related to our broad world in which we live, we just say for all of us who are involved in whatever we're doing, just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. And if we all did that, the billions of us in the world, some of these larger issues would probably not be as devastating as they are, because billions of people were doing the right thing. So um, that's why we shouldn't feel paralyzed by that we can't do all the big stuff. We can do the little stuff at the same time. So why don't we go, Tom, to our next guest? Our next guest is Dr. Andrea Bartoli, who is the president of the San Ergidio Foundation for Peace and Dialogue. And we we'll talk about the work of the San Ergidio Foundation in a variety of different ways, and particularly an upcoming uh, vigil that they are sponsoring again this year. Dr. Andrea Bartoli, thank you for joining us on Just Love.
2: Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, I'm delighted. You know, um, Andrea, many, many people know of the tremendous work of the San Egidio community, but there are also a lot of people who don't. So as we begin our conversation, maybe for some of our listeners who might be hearing the phrase San Egidio community, San Egidio Foundation, they may say, well, what is that? Can you give us a little bit of a primer on the San Egidio community?
2: Very good. I'm delighted. I joined the community of San Egidio when I was 13, and it was 1970, and the community didn't have this name. Was just a community. And if you look at the community today, you are surprised that still uses this Italian name, right? In English, uh, Sant'Egidio is St. Giles, but we didn't become the community of St. Giles. We stayed Sant'Egidio. And this is because Sant'Egidio was born in Rome. And Rome is is a strange city. It's a, a city where clearly still the memory of Peter and Paul is so intensely perceived. That uh, it's a holiday. It, the entire city, the entire world, you know, stops because you need to remember the same Peter and Paul that were at the beginning of that uh, church, of the church, of the church that then became so deeply rooted in Rome, the Catholic Church, that still today, you know, through the Pope is uh, is serving unity in a very special way. So Sant'Egidio is the expression of a Catholic response after Vatican II to, to the desire of the church to live the gospel and to invite everybody, not just the cleric, not just the religious people, but just lay people. So it was a, it is a family of friends who read the gospel and felt that the gospel needed to be lived, not just heard at mass once a week or when we remember, but rather a word that was calling for a change of life. And this is what it is. Officially now, uh, canonically, it's a publicly association of the church. And for those who are somewhat familiar with canon law, it's interesting to note that there was no such a recognition in the canon law before. So the, the church had to invent something new after Vatican II to describe this new entity you know that that is clearly a lay reality but is a little bit more than just a parish group it's um, it's a family of friends that uh, from Rome went to Germany and then from there in Africa half of the people today participating in the Santa Sant'Egidio are in Africa and you need to think that there are something along the 60 70 thousand people um, uh, at the moment uh, participating in the community.
0: Andrea, that was a very, very good explanation. Now, are you yourself a Roman? Are you from Rome?
2: I am. I am. I was born in Rome, lived in Rome until I was 35, and then the community was successfully involved in a peace process in Mozambique, Mm -hmm. and all the talks and the negotiation happened in Rome between 1990 and 1992. And uh, when in 92, the agreement was about to be signed, I was asked to come to the U.S. to follow that peace process to the U.N. U.N. is in New York. So I came here and I live here ever since. My children are now American. I became an American citizen a few months ago, uh, eight months ago, but uh, well,
0: we're, we're I live a very came.
2: American life.
0: We're glad you came to New York. So uh, in so, our know, last segment on Just Love, we talk kind of sadly about the negative impact of the Trinity test in 1945 on the people of New Mexico. In the upcoming days, the San Eginio Foundation community is sponsoring a vigil related to the anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about what you were doing and why you were doing
2: it so what we were doing is simply to open your church the the chapel of the sacred heart of jesus and mary a very beautiful new church modern church that is very close to the united nations in new york city for prayer for 75 hours straight every every hour there will be somebody in the church and there will be hourly prayers for peace and uh, we will pray for all the countries in the world um, remembering them at 8:15 uh, when the bomb was dropped and we will pray from the moment the first bomb was dropped in Hiroshima at 8:15 in in Hiroshima it's the 7:15 in New York City and uh, until the when the, mom, the the moment in which it was uh, run it was uh, bombed in uh, Nagasaki at uh, um, eleven ten eleven five on, on in the morning of the night. So the seventy five hours sort of becomes a moment that we would like to offer to everybody around the world, especially the communities of Sant'Egidio around the world, but everybody to think for a moment about the victims, because um, there is no doubt that uh, for humanity, uh, learning to control nuclear energy is an extraordinary. Lee. And uh, in many ways, it's like uh, inventing the chariot, right, inventing the, the wheel. Of course, you know, the wheel is a wonderful way to grow as a human family. If we didn't have the wheel, many things would be very difficult. It's like inventing a sheep, you know, inventing a, a way to sail, you know, for those kind of things where human inventions, you know, animals do not fly, Unless they are birds, but humans are the only ones that are not supposed to fly naturally and then are able to invent an airplane, right? But humans are also able to say, okay, now that we have the airplane, we can kill people with the airplanes. We can use the airplanes to kill better, to kill more, to kill my enemies, our enemies, in a way that we couldn't do before. So, what many people don't realize is that this choosing, this human choosing, is very different if you take into consideration your fellow human being. If you are choosing to use the airplane to kill, you are making a choice that makes an instrument like an airplane to do something that has nothing to do with the nature of the instrument. You know, we can kill people with our hand. We can kill people with our head. We can kill people with our foot, with our elbow, with our knee, right? Is our hand, are our hand meant to be killing people? I don't think so. You know, is is, is our head used to, to to kill people? Is that the main reason we, we use our head? No. So the, the nuclear bomb is an expression of human intentionality that uses a discovery of the human family, that is the control of the human, the, the, the nuclear energy for intentionally destructive purposes. And the question is that once you take into consideration the victims hundreds of thousands of them catholics uh, that are you know used to just war theory and uh, thomas and uh, and so on know very well the distinction between those who are in war as military personnel and the civilians you need to treat you need to make a very very important distinction right one thing is to confront your enemy that is coming to you with weapons and chivalry and and, and so on and so forth. And one thing is to kill civilians that are unable to defend themselves. So the choice that humanity did at the moment of the bombing is a choice that we really don't want humanity to do again. We don't need to be against nuclear power to be against nuclear bombing. There is a major difference there, right? We, we can use everything that the Lord gave us to develop more, to develop better. But there is no reason for us to use anything that is not meant to be for anything but the human good for something else. So we want to remember the victims because we believe that remembering the victims will help us and will help humanity to make the right choices in the future. With this conflict in Ukraine and Russia, um, the the risk of nuclear, uh, of the use of, a new use of of nuclear weapons is much, much higher. And we feel that uh, it's important for New York to serve as a source of uh, hope and concern that, that these weapons will never be used again. And so we decided to offer these 75 hours as a way to really um, offer a space, offer a, a way in which uh, we can remind ourselves that uh, it's definitely good to remember the victims and not use nuclear bomb again.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Andrea Bartolo, who is the president of the San Eginio Foundation for Peace and Dialogue. Um, Andrea, the 75 hours, is that kind of between the interval between the dropping of the first and the second bomb?
2: Exactly, exactly. And this is because there is also this issue of what do you learn from what you do, right? Right. Uh, Americans did the first bombing in uh, um, New Mexico uh, with the Trinity. And of course, for any Catholic, just the mentioning of the Trinity in the context of a of a, atomic bombing is, is surreal, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's an incredible, blas, blasphemous. Uh, it's, almost,
0: it's almost like when they, I think they named a few years ago an atomic submarine, Corpus Christi.
2: Exactly. It's, it's, it's yeah. just an extraordinary leap, right? It's, uh, exactly. it's really remarkable.
0: But, so what? let me ask your assessment and for our listeners, Dr. Bartolo has been involved in a number of initiatives throughout the world, trying to raise awareness and trying to foster peace in some of the very troubled parts of our world. I'm going to ask you a different a question which probably doesn't have an answer, but I'd like you to answer. Are we, as a world, are we getting better or are we getting worse at resolving our disputes and our differences with violence and war? Are we getting better or are we getting worse?
2: So it's difficult to say. Obviously, we need to find criteria for that. Right. And uh, right. one thing that we definitely need to uh, be aware is that we have many more.
0: Right.
2: So just the fact that we have many more it creates a situation that simply in terms of numbers, the situation is much worse. If you look at the what is happening, for example, with Catholic and Christian martyrs, there are more martyrs today than in all the centuries combined before.
0: Right.
2: This is because the violence is there. You know, there are many situations in which Catholic and Christians are not loved, are not welcome, are not uh, accompanied. And this is true for many other situations, right? So in terms of numbers, absolute numbers, there is clearly uh, an increase. But in terms of... Uh, of percentage num- numbers are actually often doing better, much better. And there are many situations, you know, if you, if you think about Switzerland, you know, it's very rare to have violent occurrences in Switzerland, not just in the last week or last year, but for centuries now. And uh, what is interesting is that Switzerland was able to absorb even the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, the splitting of Christianity in different things. It's a country where you have different linguistic and ethnic groups and so on. So how how did that happen? Well, people learn how to live among differences and turn differences into riches. And what many people do not know is that part of that story, of that Swiss story, is actually a Catholic saint, St. Nicholas von Flue, who was a layperson, and lived a life in in a wood by himself praying all the time. And when the, the, the forces of war were splitting the confederation, they decided after the failure of the stand to go to Nicholas and ask for advice. And Nicholas gave such a good advice that it changed the tone of the conversation among the people that were negotiating. And they uh, found an agreement that kept the confederation together for 350 years. So peace is not only possible, but is a duty. If we look at what happened between the U.S. and Soviet Union, these were arch enemies. These were enemies that that, that proliferated, multiplied their nuclear uh, arsenals in incredible numbers, that spent trillions of dollars in, in doing... Um, armaments. And obviously, you know, it's a a consideration apart on what would have happened if the US and Soviet Union would have spent that in in favor of the poor, right? But even the US and and the Soviet Union were able to have agreements. They were perfectly able to have agreements. So we need need to hope that humanity will move in that direction.
0: Dr. Bartolo, thank you for Joining us, Just Love, and I look forward to praying with you in the upcoming days in the 75-hour Vigil for Peace. Thank you for being with us on Just Love.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. Our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. You know, Tom, we've talked about today the issue of nuclear weapons of nuclear tests, the fallout, and I do think it is a little bit scary to me how powerful that atomic bomb was when you know we hear it, more energy than the sun, the impact of the plutonium, the radiation, and I guess it's really, really important that we keep a lot of that in mind because thanks be to God, there hasn't been another dropping of an atomic bomb since then, since 1945. And I think maybe we need to be careful that we don't get lulled into complacency, that we need to be ever vigilant to make sure that the bomb doesn't get dropped, dropped again. And I think, you know, sometimes out of sight, out of mind, but I'm just delighted that we were able to hear Tina Cordova and to hear Dr. Bartolo speak to us about working for peace. So thank you for joining us today on Just Love and Just Do It. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel. Sirius XM 129.